Like you, I was born destined for death because of sin. Sin is anything that goes against God, who is perfectly just and good. We've all sinned, and the result is separation from God. That is true death. God desires restoration. He sent Jesus, who is both God and man, perfect in every way. Being perfect, Jesus died for my sins, paying the debt I couldn't pay, repairing the separation between me and God. By his death, I am made clean. I am a new creation. The unbearable weight of my sin is gone, and I can begin a new life free from sin and true death. This is only the beginning. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done for me, I choose to follow him. My outward self is washed as a display of my inward faith. I eagerly give him my obedience, declaring this gift to the world. God refuses to leave me scarred by sin. His desire is for me to have the humility, kindness, and love of Jesus, to fight the temptation, pride, and laziness of my old self. Knowing this world is still broken, I cling to the hope that is coming when I am with God, finally home. And this hope I have in a future with Jesus brings me great joy. This is what God has done. I deserve death. Jesus died in my place. I am made clean. In obedience, I follow him. I grow in faith. And my future hope brings new life. This is amazing grace. This is the gospel. Week two of our series we started that will take us really all the way to the cross and to the empty tomb and out the other side, more to the story, that is the series that we're in. What is the more of the story in each of these, uh, in each of these examples? Last week we were talking about the Good Samaritan. We learned last week, of course, the powerful message that we actually aren't the Good Samaritan that none of us could ever be good enough to be the Good Samaritan, but the Good Samaritan was Christ. We're the ones that were beaten up and left by the side of the road. And Jesus, the Good Samaritan, came and rescued us. And now he invites us to open up our doors and our hearts to others to be like an inn for those who are hurting. And so in this series, what we're doing then is moving from the moral of the story, right, to the moral of the story. The moral of the story is we're all good Samaritans go out and make the world a better place, but there's a deeper meaning, there's a more to the story, and we're seeing that throughout, we'll see that throughout the series, and we'll see it this morning. Here's our big idea, uh, which was last week's big idea, but this is really the big idea of the entire series. Jesus puts the gospel into everyday language. He just takes the gospel and puts this gospel, this great theological premise of the redemptive plan, and just inserts it into everyday language. It's a beautiful thing to stop and think about. I want to start today with this question, though, okay? I've got a question here, and um, 
Simply this, God is, and I wonder how you would fill in that blank. Like we can think of words that describe God, right? There's all kinds of words. God is what? Somebody throw some words out. He is all-knowing. Sovereign, good. Omnipresent. Omniscient. Powerful. Merciful. Enough. Gracious. Everything. But you guys just preach the sermon yourself today. There's all these, like he's holy, righteous, mighty, powerful, awesome, fearful, glorious, worthy, sovereign, wise, good, purposeful, faithful, trustworthy, true, fatherly, near, peace, loving, forgiving, merciful, gracious, compassionate, relational. We could go on and on and on. And yet there's one word that I think really describes God in an incredibly powerful way throughout the entire Bible. And I'll bet you we could sit here and we could list and list and list and we would never put the word on that blank. What God is what? There's a word we're going to look at today about God. And if you want to understand it, it's actually found in the sermon title, The God Who Loves to Celebrate. Did you know that God is joyful? He's joyful. Like God is full of joy. And I don't think we ever really stop and think about how much joy there is in God. In fact, I almost titled this, this message, The God Who Likes to Throw a Party. Because God likes to throw a party. Did you ever think about that? You just read your Bible. You'll find it over and over again. He, prodigal son comes home, let's throw a party. Israel, Israelites leave uh, Egypt in the Exodus, let's throw an annual party. That's the reality. So this opening question, God is joyful. He is full of joy. He is a God who likes to celebrate. And in fact, here's today's big idea, and this may be one of the most memorable big ideas I ever put to a message. You'll probably remember this one for a long time. Jesus is the life of the party. And as we go through the message today and we walk through this, and we start in, in, in John 2 and go to verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and then 6, 7 and 8 and 9, 10, 11, it's going to become increasingly clear what that phrase means, that Jesus is the life, literally the life of the party. We're at this wedding in Cana. We talked about in John 2. Thank you, Rick, for reading that again for us so beautifully. And everybody remember, a lot of people remember this story, right? How many can't remember the miracle when Jesus turned some everyday water into really some uh, wonderful wine? Like, wine? Free wine? Yeah, sign me up. Maybe, I'll, maybe, maybe I should start going to church if they have free wine. You know, it's like, hey, what a miracle. Let's get a little context as we jump into chapter 2 this morning, though, and we'll start here. This is, again, the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns the water into wine, and this is really a significant thing. We're going to see how significant it is, and we, we can start because this starts on the, on the heels of the faith of Nathaniel, and what I mean by that is in John chapter 1, Jesus is getting his earthly ministry going, has an encounter with about six of the disciples, uh, Philip and, 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 uh, Philip and um, Nathaniel are two of them. And these six individuals, Andrew, James, Peter, John, Philip, and Nathaniel, they were actually looking for the Messiah. And so Jesus comes and finds them, and Jesus says to Nathaniel, I saw you yesterday sitting under a tree. He knew his name. Nathaniel's like, whoa, like sign me up, you must be the Messiah. <laughs> and here's what Jesus says to him. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the tree, do you believe? <laughs> you will see greater things than these. And we go right into chapter 2, and he's going to see something pretty amazing when Jesus turns the water into wine. If he believed him now, what will happen 
the next day. Well, we know, really, actually, we know. And the other thing to note here is that this wedding at Cana, it's more than a miracle, it really is. It is the first of eight specific signs in John's Gospel. Eight specific signs, and uh, this is the first of those eight signs. In fact, here's what it says, the last verse in today's text. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus does this miracle so they will believe in him. And they're kicking off their ministry with a bang. Pretty powerful. In fact, here's what it says in John 20, verse 30, the end of John's gospel. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So more than just miracles here in John, there are these eight specific signs that point us to Christ, that identify Christ, who he is, why he came, the significance of his life, so that we can believe on him and so that we can then have life. Wow, good, good, good stuff. And it shows us that there is more to this miracle than just turning water into wine. And there is more to this story. And we're going to look today and we're going to see the more to the story. Today's big idea again, Jesus is the life of the party. This will be so, become so clear and be so meaningful to us as we go forward. And we're going to start in John 2, the first two verses here, okay? John 2, verses 1 and 2 looking for six life lessons from the wedding celebration here. John 2, 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And what we're going to do today is we're going to, together, we're going to combine both the practical and the theological. We're going we're to find the more of the story as we look at the moral of the story together at the same time and it'll make sense as we go forward the first thing is this here's the first i guess the first moral the first lesson for us is that god loves to celebrate life and rejoice with us he does we maybe don't picture god that way but he loves to celebrate life and rejoice with us and we get this picture in john 15 right or not john 15 luke 15 that i mean the minute we're saved all the angels throw a party and they just rejoice because we got saved we were lost and we're found and we got saved And uh, yeah, pretty powerful stuff there. But here's what really strikes me as interesting is that Jesus starts his earthly ministry at a party. I mean, he's, he's into ministry, and he's like, but he's not too busy to go to a party, to go to a wedding party, to go to a celebration, because he likes to celebrate. God likes to celebrate. I think it's pretty powerful. Pretty powerful that this is where he starts his ministry. And the question, I really, I really wonder, the question here is, Can you see Jesus at this wedding dancing and laughing and toasting and celebrating? Can you? I don't think we can. And and, and why can't we see Jesus in in that context? Because he's God, and we don't see God in that context. Like, God doesn't go to parties. God doesn't go out and have a good time. I mean, he's he's got to control. He's worried about the whole world. Ukraine's on fire. I mean, God doesn't have time to have a party and celebrate. Yet the reality is God does. And we need to take some lessons from him. Now, the truth is, Jesus doesn't know necessarily that he's going to do his first miracle here. The Father does. That's why the Father sends him here, because the Father sends him to this wedding to do this miracle. But Jesus is not aware of it at that time. But we just look at this idea, this concept again, that God is a God of celebration. We see this. You look at Israel, right? 
The seven Jewish feasts embedded within the Mosaic law were all celebrations. That's what they all had in common. Like they were all celebrations. And, and God loved to celebrate. Like there was Passover and, and uh, unleavened bread and, and first fruits and Pentecost and trumpets and Day of Atonement and booths or tabernacles. There were these seven celebrations, these seven Jewish feasts, four in the spring, three each fall. And God, in the Old Testament, God loved to celebrate with his people what he had done, like in the Passover and the great Exodus. He loved to celebrate what he was doing, as in the Day of Atonement, when he was actively forgiving their sins. And he loved to celebrate what he would do, as in the, first, uh, the Feast of uh, First Fruits, which pointed to the resurrection. You see, God loves to celebrate. Loves to celebrate. Look at your neighbor and say, God loves to celebrate life with you. He loved, we need to reiterate that. We need to get that in our head. There's one great story in the Old Testament, Nehemiah, right? The book of Nehemiah. And Israel has been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And then they get to go back to their homeland. And a remnant goes back and they start rebuild, rebuilding the walls. And the walls get all rebuilt around the city there. And then they come out and Ezra and Nehemiah are out and they're reading the book of the law to them. The long lost forgotten book of the Jewish law. And as they read it, the people begin to mourn and begin to weep. And it's so fascinating, the response. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Nehemiah 8, 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our God. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And there's two words in there that just to, just, I think sometimes we think they're like, they, 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 they're counter each other. He says, this day is a holy Lord, a holy day. So, so rejoice and celebrate. Like holiness and celebration kind of go hand in hand. And we would think, well, holiness, they, yeah, isn't it good that they feel bad? Isn't it right that they feel terrible about their sins? And it's almost like God is saying, well, don't wallow in your, in your, in your guilt and shame. Celebrate. I think it's so powerful because we would think God is the other way. Like, yeah, you should feel bad. You've been, you've been a bad nation of people. You should feel terrible about yourself. This is a holy day. You feel terrible. <laughs> I love this. Paul, 2 Corinthians 7, speaks about this reality of godly sorrow. Listen to what he says to the Corinthians. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Although I did regret it, I now see that my letter caused you sorrow, but only for a short time. So, so Paul doesn't... Paul doesn't feel good that they felt bad. Verse 9, And now I rejoice, not because you were made sorrowful, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. And so basically his letter caused them to think differently about their sin and their attitude and their behavior. And so he's happy because of that. For, he says, and he goes on, for you, for you felt the sorrow that God had intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. What a, what a powerful thing there when you, when, you, when you think about what he says there. He goes on, Consider what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what zeal, what vindication. 
So in other words, godly sorrow helps us live out our salvation without any regret, while worldly sorrow, such as guilt, shame, and condemnation, is destructive to our spiritual life. I think it's pretty powerful. Godly sorrow is healthy. Worldly sorrow is deadly. And godly sorrow is healthy because what does it lead to? Does it lead to guilt and shame and condemnation? No, godly sorrow leads to rejoicing. Finding my joy because the joy of the Lord is my strength. And godly sorrow says, I feel really bad about this. It goes back to what we said a couple weeks ago, right? God does not convict us of sin today. He convicts us of righteousness. And he convicts me of who I am in him. And so then I have this godly sorrow because it's like, well, I feel really bad. That's not who I am. This is who I am. And then I rejoice and I celebrate because the joy of the Lord is my strength. Worldly sorrow is deadly. Not that it literally kills our spiritual life, but it's hard to live out, this, live out your salvation when you're beating yourself up with condemnation. It just is. I love what David Yuzik says here. Here's a great quote from the Enduring Word Commentary. Our knowledge of our sin should never be bigger than our knowledge of Jesus as our Savior. We are great sinners, but He is a greater Savior. Amen. That is so good. That is so good. And so God is a Savior. He likes to celebrate with us. He rejoices with us as we move to a posture of victory over our sin. And this is where we move to the more of the story. From the moral of the story to the more of the story, this story is then a nod. Did you get this? A nod to the greatest celebration ever. This, this story is all about pointing us to the greatest. What's the greatest celebration in all of history? Resurrection Sunday. Christ came out of that grave. Did you catch it in there? It's in the very first verse. On the third day. And that's a reference to Resurrection Sunday. I'll give you a couple of, of examples here. 1 Corinthians 15, 1, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And he goes on and references the third day. But I want you to note there that this is, is, is taking us back to the Scriptures. He died in accordance with the Scriptures. And he, he, he was raised again in accordance with the Scriptures. Look what he says in Luke 24. Day of his resurrection. Talking to, teaching some of, his, some of his followers on the road to Emmaus. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Here's what we don't have time to go look into today. But here's, here's what any, member, any, any Jew that knew anything about the Old Testament writings, when they heard on the third day, they would immediately say, oh, that was an important day. The third day was an important day in Jewish history. You can go look it up throughout the Old Testament. A lot of things happened on the third day. It was a significant day not as significant as when Christ raised himself from the grave. And when it says on the third day, it's pointing us back to the Old Testament scriptures that point us to the empty tomb. It's like a back, it's like looking back to look forward. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. And so here we see the more of this story. It's more than just a wedding. It's more than two people getting hitched. This happened on the third day and something significant happened on the third day and it's pointing us ultimately to that. Today's big idea, Jesus is the life of the party. There's a party going on. He's going to be the life of this party. We'll see how as we continue forward. We'll see as we go forward. Let me catch up here. Okay. Here's our second lesson today. We're in verse, uh, verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, 
They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Hmm. Well, here's our second lesson. God loves to be involved in our life and care for us. God loves to be involved in our life and care for us. Whatever you're going through, God cares. He's walking through life with you. He cares for you. You just need to understand that. This story gets a bit interesting here. You have to understand some of the um, some of the etiquette, some of the etiquette, some of the etiquette. <laughs> maybe when it comes to these, to, when it comes to these weddings in those days. First, a wedding was like a week long affair. Like the couple would get married on like the first or second day of the celebration, and then they would celebrate all week long with their friends. And then secondly, is that the bridegroom was responsible for the wine. So the bridegroom has to bring the wine to this great celebration. And wine is extremely important. It's kind of like a birthday party with no birthday cake is a, is a wedding, with no, wedding with no wine. And, and actually, you could actually be held liable if you didn't have enough wine. Like, can you imagine that? Like, you just get married and then the next week your in-laws come and take you to court because you didn't have enough wine at the celebration? I mean, that's, that's how important this really absolutely was. And so you can see that you would need a lot of wine. You got a whole week-long celebration. You need a lot of wine. And so in steps Jesus, his mother Mary, and calls on Jesus. And the fascinating thing is that Jesus says, he says, Mom, this isn't my time. And then he turns around and does the miracle. And we're all like, what? That don't make sense. It's like, Mom, it's, it's not my time to do miracles. And then he turns around and does the miracle. What does that mean? Well, we can kind of unpack that here and understand what's going on. But just note, this would be an embarrassing and possibly a costly situation. So, and this is what Jesus is stepping into. And for some reason, Mary is concerned about this. This concerns Mary. I don't know why. Maybe it was one of Jesus' brothers. And being that he was the bridegroom and responsible for the wine, then she is kind of held de facto herself kind of in that position of being responsible for making sure there is enough wine. Could be. Make no mistake about it. Jesus cares about the situations we get ourselves into at times. And this is not to say he always bails us out, but more often than not, he does. Now, there's another stumbling block in this story, though, right? The stumbling block is this, because he says to his mom, he says, woman, and, and so people look at that and say, why woman? What does woman mean? Isn't that disrespectful when he says woman? Well, actually not really. And that day it wouldn't have been disrespectful. Somebody said it's kind of the equivalent of saying madam. Well, madam, why are you asking me to provide wine? It's not my time. And, and I think what's going on here is there is a shift at this point in the relationship between Jesus and his mother. So he doesn't call her mom. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And I think the point is this. There it is. Jesus is now answering even more to his heavenly father. So it's like Mary comes and says, Jesus, we need wine. And, and Jesus is like, well, mom, I can't do everything you want me to do anymore. I have to, I have to check with dad now. I have to, is it okay with dad if I do this miracle? Because I don't know if dad wants me to do what God wants me to do or da what dad wants me to do, how dad wants me to handle this but he may not want me to get involved. My time is, is not here to become you know, visibly noticed by everybody. That's the reality of what I think is going on. Here's an example in John 8, 28. I put some other, I think, examples on your notes. But So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority and speak just as the Father taught me. So everything Jesus did was basically cleared with the Father first. 
God the Father called the shots and God the Father said yes. God the Father said no. He said when. He said where. He said what. But this takes us again to the more of the story, right? This works right in because there's that phrase again, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And just understand, you've heard that phrase before, probably in the scriptures. And I put all the references on your notes that I could find in John, because John references this several times, and I think Luke and Mark do as well. Every time in scripture, it says, my hour has not yet come, when Jesus says that or it talks about him, it's always speaking of his resurrection, or his, his crucifixion, excuse me. Few, two examples. So they were... They were seeking to arrest him, John 7, 30. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. This is like an hour, this is probably a year before the uh, actual crucifixion. Even then they wanted to arrest him, but his hour had not yet come. When Jesus had spoken these words, John 17, 3, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. This is the night right before he's arrested and the hour has come. And you can see all the references, I put them on your handout, on your notes there, all the references that speak about this, this idea of this hour, it always pointed to his crucifixion. And again, we see that, it's embedded in the story. We see that embedded in the story. My hour has not yet come, always references the crucifixion of Christ. And again, Jesus is the life of the party. Yes, beginning to see how this is going to be embedded even deeper in the you kind of get what that big idea, how that's going to come into even greater focus here. We go to verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This is fascinating here, right? So here's the, here's the lesson. It pays to obey God in life. Even if it requires faith, it pays to obey God. It does. And this is where the story gets kind of fascinating, kind of a little bit humorous here. So here's how it plays out. Mary comes to Jesus and says, help, we need wine. Oh, crisis. And Jesus is like, well, I, I don't know if I can do anything right now. It's not my time. And she says, so do whatever he tells him. Do, do whatever he tells you to do. Kind of like this. Here's a, here's a modern day example, maybe a little more clearly. Mother comes to her adult son, Jeff. Jeff, it's your birthday tomorrow. So tomorrow night, I'm going to fix you a birthday dinner at 6 o'clock. Come over at 6 for a birthday dinner. And Jeff's like, well, I don't know if I can make it, Mom. I'll have to talk to Linda. And she says, fine, I'll see you at 6 and wear something nice. It's like you can't tell Mom no sometimes. Like you try to tell Mom no and she just doesn't hear you. It's like, no, this is the way it's going to be. So she's like, just do whatever he tells you to do. Whatever he commands you, you just do that kind of fascinating when you think about it now there is a possibility here that the reason mary responded that way is because she was already listening to god that god had told mary hey you're, you're gonna have a problem and jesus is gonna solve that problem and you're gonna ask him it could be that mary already is listening to god but that's the point here right we need to listen to god when he speaks to us we need to listen to god i saw a great meme on facebook this week there's a guy in the car saying, I wish God would talk to me. And this girl's over here and she says, read your Bible. And he's like, no, out loud. And she's like, read your Bible out loud. <laughs> I love it. 
God talks to us in his word. We just need to listen when God talks and we need to do and pay, pay attention and obey what he says. But here's the reality, right? God's ways may seem crazy at times, when in reality, they simply require faith. Like we, we look at something, God wants me to do what? That's crazy. And it's like, no, it's not crazy. It just requires faith. <laughs> if some things didn't require faith, then they would never seem crazy. Kind of like the Israelites are asked to, 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 to march around the walls of Jericho, right? For seven days, and then on the seventh day, march around seven times, and then blow your trumpets. And can you just imagine, you can just hear them as they're watching, marching around those walls about the fourth day. One of the guys in line there starts grumbling. is like, this is so stupid. What are we doing? I'm so tired of getting up early in the morning and marching around these walls looking like a fool and all the Canaanites are laughing at us. This is so ridiculous. Why did we send the spies into Rahab's house if we're going to resort to this? And somebody responds to him, well, hey, just humor Joshua, humor him. Remember when Moses told us to go in and we wouldn't go in and you know, our parents wouldn't go in and then we got born out in the wilderness, so just humor him. And then on that seventh day when they blow the horns and all the walls come down, I bet you some of them looked up and said, whoa, who is our God again? See, sometimes God's ways might seem a little crazy, but they just simply require faith. And I'm thinking about that in the context of this story because they're told to take some wine and go give this wine to the master of the ceremonies. Hebrews 11.30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Sometimes obedience requires faith. Sometimes obedience simply requires faith. The moral of the story is found in Hebrews 5.7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence and so here is Jesus the night that he is arrested he's in the garden and he's praying and he's sweating drops of blood and he's begging God like if there's any other way but not my way your will be done that whole scenario in the garden there and it just tells us here in this instance that Jesus learned obedience and he learned obedience how? through faith he, he had to go to the cross in faith and, and just trust the Lord. And as he did, he learned obedience. And that to me is so mind-blowing to think that God learned obedience. I mean, how, how, how does that work again? How does that work again? Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What a great contrast. He learned obedience and then he is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. How do we obey him? Well, we, we believe and receive. We just believe and receive. That's all we have to do. It's not like we have to do anything other than believe that he is the Christ and receive him into our life. Jesus obeyed his father through faith. And sometimes obedience requires faith. That's the more of the story here that we need to understand. We're called to walk in faith, but Jesus walked in faith. And we see that embedded in the story, how important this faith is in the story. 
Again, the big idea. Jesus is the life of the party and it's going to become very clear here in this next point. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And this is what I was getting lost on last point there. I wonder what these servants thought. You talk about faith, right? So I wonder what they thought when they had to take some of this water out and take it to the master of the ceremonies and they're like, but this is water. <laughs> it's like, so we, because we don't know when the miracle happened. We don't know when the transformation happened when it turned from water to wine. We don't know, do we? We're not told that. And so it's kind of interesting to stop and think about that reality. It could be as they're drawing the water out to take it to the master of the ceremonies, they're like, hey, this looks like wine. And so they take it to him. Jesus is the abundant life that always provides for us. Jesus is the abundant life that always provides for us. This is the lesson, and we just got to get it, because here's what's kind of missing to us, I think, maybe in this miracle. Um, There were six of these stone water jars for the the rites of purification. And so uh, John basically tells us, John didn't know exactly how much they held, but he had an estimate, and that estimate is between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. That's a pretty good celebration. That's quite a party. That's, that's amazing. And I think we, we can think the miracle is great. I mean, what a great miracle. You turn water into wine, but what we miss is the size of the miracle, like 120 gallons, is 180 gallons. That's even, wow, that's a lot of wine. And note how they filled these, these things to the brim. It reminds me of that story in the Old Testament with Elijah and the widow's oil, right? Like Elijah had this servant who passed away and his wife is left alone and she's poor and she's struggling and she goes to Elijah and Elijah says, I'll tell you what, borrow all the jars you can around town, you bring them home. Then you take, she had one little jar of oil left. He said, you take your little jar of oil and you start pouring that into all the the jars that you borrow. And then you take and you sell all that oil and you pay your debts off. And she did that, and she brings in all these jars, and she fills them up. And the minute she comes to the last jar, her jar is empty. It's a miracle. It's an amazing miracle. It shows the abundance of God. God is a God of abundance. The God we serve is a God of abundance. And it kind of says, boy, I should have gone out and got 30 more jars, because I'd have 30 more. You know, it kind of speaks to that reality. And that's what you see here. They fill these up to the very brim. They fill them up to the very very brim. You see, here's the, here's the thing we're, we're missing in this, right? They had to get 120 to 180 gallons of water into these, into these jars. That's amazing. That's a lot of work. It would be easy to like fill them half full, but they filled them to the brim, which makes me think just maybe, just maybe, the minute they poured them in, it like turned to wine, and they're like, whoa! And so they filled these babies right up to the brim, man. They'd, they were just there. Because they were turning to wine instantly. That's kind of what I think probably happened. But we serve this God of abundance. Jesus says, I, I came to bring abundant life. The Holy Spirit is like this, this river of the uh, spring of water, of life, just bubbling up from inside of us, filling us up every day. God is a God of abundant life. Let me, let me give you a handful of examples real briefly here. 
John 10, 10, in the Amplified Bible, the thief comes only in order to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. Romans 15, 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's abundant hope in Christ. How about abundant faith in 2 Thessalonians 1.3? We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. I love this one, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They had an abundance of joy that resulted in an overflow of generosity. Colossians 2, 6, Therefore, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And one last one, 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, And the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone else, just as our love for you overflows. Abundant love. And the reality is, when you come to Christ and when you when you're saved and you, then you begin to trust in and depend upon Christ, you will never lack for joy or hope or peace or love or compassion or you'll, you'll have an abundance of anything you need to make it through this world. To be in Christ is to have the abundance of Christ. Just think about that. To be in Christ is to have the abundance of Christ. Of Christ, And what struck me here, as I looked at those, all of those verses, I tried to look for cross-references, like I would look at the word overflow or abundance and try to find cross-references. You couldn't find any. I'm like, why, why is there not a thread in our Bibles that talk about the abundance we have? Like, I, like, there's an overflow of love here and an overflow of joy here and an overflow of hope here. And, but we, I don't know, we don't think that way. We need to know that God is a God of abundant life. I just think that is so powerful. And I think in the context of this wedding, when we get to the, to, to the reality of this miracle, then they have more than enough wine. They're not going to run out of wine. They have more wine than they'll ever need. They'll be sending wine home, like after the potluck. Hey, you want to take some wine home? You want to take a gallon of wine home? We got a, another 80 gallons yet. Pretty amazing. And that brings us to the moral of the story that shows us that wine in the story actually represents more than enjoyment. It has a deeper significance. You see, the wine in this story represents the very life of Christ. He literally is the life of the party. In fact, think about it with me. What is wine symbolic of throughout the Bible? Communion, all these examples, right? It's blood. The life represents his blood. The wine represents the life and the blood of Christ. And when they lacked for wine, the story is saying we have a greater need than just wine. You won't find abundant life in wine, but you will find it in Christ. You'll find it in the life of Christ. You'll find it in the blood of Christ. Wine is not the real source of celebration. The blood of Christ is. And the point is this, when Jesus steps up and meet this, meets this need, he's foreshadowing what he will do on the cross. And he all, when he willingly steps up here as well, you know what he's, he's doing? He's assuming the role of what? The bridegroom. 
He's supplying the wine as the bridegroom, supplying the wine for the wedding. Wow, this is so amazing. And we see here in this miracle that he didn't come then. His purpose, why he came to earth, he didn't come to turn water into wine. He came to turn death into life. He literally came to do it. Jesus is most literally the life of the party. He has assumed the role of the bridegroom responsible to provide the wine slash, in reality, the blood. How amazing. He is truly the life of this party. Here's our very last lesson today. Verses 9 and 10, When the master of the feast tested the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Here's the reality. God's best is yet to come, and he will amaze us. Just know that. Whatever's going on in the world, doesn't matter. The best is yet to come. No matter how difficult things are, no matter how good things become, no matter how high, price, how high gas prices go, it doesn't matter. The best is yet to come, and He will amaze us. We just need to keep that in mind. God has saved His best for us for last. And this is just countercultural for weddings in those days because you just didn't do that. You would give them the best wine first and when they were a little tipsy or had a little bit of wine or were a little tired or a little tired of celebrating, then you'd bring out the bad wine. But no, they saved the best till last and the master of the ceremonies is like, whoa, that's really unusual. This is great. And what it is, it's countercultural, but it's countercultural in another way as well. It's countercultural in the sense that what it's really speaking to is the reality that there is something better than law. There is something better than law. There is something better than grace. There's something better than law, and that is God's grace. Grace is more effective at producing righteousness than law is. That's the hidden message here we see in this story. People think that too much grace is a license to sin, but the truth is before we are saved, we have no problem sinning, right? We don't need, you don't need a license to sin. Hey, sinning is easy. It, the question is really, what does a better job of helping us combat sin? I, I remember the story, I've told it before. Remember that story where they built, the, they built the hotel and then it was right next to a lake and so you could look out of your window and see the lake? And they built this and then they immediately got worried. You know, people might actually fish out their windows. So they put signs on all, in the hotel on all the windows, no fishing out the windows. And so then down below, people would be sitting there eating their meal, and sure enough, people couldn't listen, and there, were, there, was, there was fish slamming into the window down there by the restaurant, you know, because they were, you know, fishing out their window. And this went on for a while, and fin- this is a true story, and finally they decided, they, they took down the signs, people stopped fishing out their windows. No one thought of it. And if you did think of it, the extra thrill of breaking the rules wasn't there. People stopped doing it. And that's the reality of what the Scripture tells us about the law, that the law actually encourages us to sin, Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Did you catch that? The law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So there's like this, this, this battle going on here, and here's the law, and the law actually had the reverse effect. It caused people to sin more, that when people sin more, well, grace just increased. 
And Paul can attest to this. The Apostle Paul himself talks about this in Romans 7. Like before I was saved, I really loved God. I genuinely loved God. I wanted to serve Yahweh. But boy, that law just gave me a desire to fish out the window. (laughs) And then I got saved and then I got grace. And I found grace and you know what? I started finding victory over my desire to fish out the window. It's like I started finding victory because grace... This is the countercultural lesson. Grace does a better job of present, preventing sin than law does. And there's a lot of people today that think that's just an absurd, like, no. It's like, yeah, you need grace to get into heaven. You need grace to be saved, but you need law to keep yourself from sinning. No. Romans tells us law makes us sin all the more. It's grace that does a better job of preventing sin. Some people think more uh, grace equals more sin, or too much grace equals too much sin, and yet... Well, here's the reality of what Scripture teaches us, right? More grace equals more sin is false according to the Scriptures. More grace equals more righteousness. Like you're, you're, you're going to have more people living rightly when they understand grace than when they're under, under, under law because under law, they're going to what? They're going to have that desire to fish out the window. They're going to have the desire to do the things they're not supposed to do. It's, it's going to stir up those passions within them and that's what, Paul said back in Romans 5.20. It's fascinating to stop and think about. And this takes us to the more of the story, right? Because what does Jesus put this water in but these six stone jars of purification? And they represent the law, like these six stone jars. These were the ceremonial jars. And and, and under the law, you had to have, there were certain things you had to do to, to cleanse yourself if you had a disease or an illness or to cleanse some of your personal belongings. And so these jars were intended for that. They represent the law. And what Jesus does is fills them with water, which they would use normally to cleanse themselves, and then he turns it into wine, which represents his blood. And in in a sense, he's replacing the old covenant of law with a new covenant of grace, saying there is something better than law. There's my blood. There's my life. My life is more powerful than any rules written on stone. What an amazing thing. I love what Paul says here in Romans 5, 17. For for if because of one man's trespass, Adam's, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, there's that word abundance again, the abundance of grace, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus truly is the life of the party. He gives us an abundance of grace. He gives us his life. And when you think of, of them saving the best wine till last, well, isn't it true Jesus was the absolute best sacrifice ever? Like there was never a better sacrifice. He was actually the final sacrifice. He was the sacrifice to literally end all sacrifices. And never again would you need another sacrifice because his blood can do permanently what that water in those jars could only do temporarily. He can wash away your sin. We sang it today. What can wash away my sin? Not, those, not the law, but Christ's blood. God's grace poured out through the life of Christ, through his blood, can wash away our sins. And he was by far the best sacrifice ever. And one last tie-in here, when you want to see the gospel here, the more of the story, just this. They, they take this wine then, right? Who do they take it to? The master of the ceremonies. There's somebody at this wedding that's going to taste this wine and then say, okay, yeah, you can serve the guests. That's suitable wine, right? 
And that's the role that Christ plays, right? Because the father was satisfied with the sacrifice of the son. There was someone who had to sign off on that sacrifice of Christ on Calvary and say, that is satisfactory to me. That will be the means of salvation for all of humanity for all time. I think just what a beautiful thing that Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus served his master God. And he took his sacrifice to the father and the father said, I'm satisfied, and in the story, the master here said, yes, this wine is, like, this is the best wine ever. And God is like, this is the best sacrifice ever. Jesus truly is the life. Do you get it now? He's the life of the party. He is, and our life should be a constant party, a constant celebration. Even when we sin and we have godly sorrow, we have it momentarily, and then that godly sorrow produces what? Great joy. Great, great joy. And Jesus is the life of the party. He's the reason that we have any joy. Let me leave you with this story. Imagine the mystery and delight of not just hearing, but seeing the story of Jesus for the first time, almost as an eyewitness. That's what happened to a tribe in the jungles of East Asia when missionaries showed them the Jesus film. Not only had these people never heard of Jesus, they had never seen a motion picture. Then on one unforgettable evening, they saw it all, the gospel in their own language, visible and real. Imagine again how it felt to see this good man, Jesus, who healed the sick and was adored by children, held without trial and beaten by jeering soldiers. As they watched this, the people came unglued. They stood up and began to shout at the cruel man on the screen, demanding that this outrage stop. When nothing happened, they attacked the missionary running the projector. Perhaps he was responsible for this injustice. He was forced to stop the film and explain that the story wasn't over yet. There was more. So they settled back onto the ground and holding their emotions in, tenuous check. Then came the crucifixion. Again, the people could not hold back. They began to weep and wail with such loud grief that once again the film had to be stopped. The missionary again tried to calm them, explaining that the story still wasn't over. There was more. So they composed themselves and sat down to see what happened next. Then came the resurrection. Pandemonium broke out this time, but for a different reason. The gathering had spontaneously erupted into a party. The noise was, was now of jubilation, and it was deafening. The people were dancing and slapping each other on the back. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Again, the missionary had to shut off the projector. This time he didn't tell them to calm down and wait for what was next. All that was supposed to happen in the story and in their lives was happening. And this is why God loves to celebrate because he can always see past the problem, the pain, the hurt, the heartache, the grief, the destruction, the mess, the moment, the enemy, and yes, even the grave. He celebrates because at no point does he ever see himself losing because he never is and he never will. You see, Jesus celebrates with us in this world as if we are already in the next world. He celebrates today as if it is eternity. And if you know Christ personally, you are created to live in and for eternity. He celebrates because he sees the resurrection in everything we go through. And he sees eternity in everything we go through. God is always celebrating. Let's celebrate with him. He's truly the life of the party. Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful wedding. Thank you that you like to enjoy life with us and celebrate life with us. Thank you that you get involved in the little issues that we have in life and the, and the problems that arise and you just come along and sometimes you do help us. And if you don't, you cause us to distrust you a little more. 
Thank you, Lord, that sometimes you ask us to do things that take a little bit of audacious faith, that we just have to, to be obedient because we have faith and we trust in you. Thank you for all of that. But thank you, Lord, in all of this, that you are the God of abundance, that when we trust you, we will never lack, we'll never be in need, there will never be anything we will lack if we're putting our faith and trust in you. And God, thank you that this whole story points us to the greatest celebration ever. Thank you, Lord, that there is an, a resurrection, that there is an empty tomb, that we can look at everything in our life through the empty tomb. And we can rejoice and we can celebrate every day because you are a God who loves to celebrate with us and hopefully we will celebrate with you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Amen.